lucky to get Richard because just last night you got home from Spain, Mercedes, Frederick, who Mercedes is from where you were, Cordoba? Oh, Cor uh, Cordoba's amazing. Ah. I had never been there before, so I don't know what time zone I'm in right now, but that aside, Spain is lovely. You don't have to worry because you're just here. That's right, I know, and I've been told I'm not allowed to leave at any point. So. Locked in, locked in. Well, I actually have been calling you my fascinating friend because I think you're fascinating. See, the way to um, hurt a speaker is to elevate the expectations <laughs> and then have that person underwhelm when they get there, having built it up too high. You're supposed to do the opposite, but that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Whatever. whatever. I've worked with you too much. I've seen you speak too many times. Okay, so what I'd like to do is really just start on a round robin because we've got so much going on in the world and the U.S. right now, and... I think that we've got a short time, so we're just going to kind of touch on different, uh, different things. But as we begin this conversation, I think we have to start with the Ukraine-Russian crisis tragedy uh, that's unfolding by the hour. We saw there was an overnight a chemical attack, uh, alleged. But we have to start from that. And I don't think any of us in December of 21 last year could, could really imagine that we would be where we are right now. Maybe some, but probably pretty rare. I was speaking to several of you uh, last night. And so I'm going to draw from that conversation, actually. And looking at the very deep history in that region, was this a provocation by Ukraine? Or is this a straight invasion? Um, well, first, thanks for having me, and thanks for being here. This is my fascinating friend. So <laughs> when uh, Liz came out to Dallas to run this exceptional organization, uh, the opportunity to be just a tiny little part of what you guys do was too good to pass up. So it's really great well, to be here. Thank you. Um, and to watch what has you guys are doing under your leadership mm. is, is amazing, too. Thank so you. thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting when you said in December we would not have thought we'd be here. So it was in December that I had uh, breakfast with a friend of mine uh, who now works um, in the Biden administration at the White House. He's the top Asia person. And we're going to get together for breakfast to talk about China, <clears throat> among other things. Gossip, too, but mm -hmm. talk about China. Uh. So I, I get there, and he, he looked kind of flummoxed. And I said, yeah, how are things going? And he goes, well, you know for the last couple of weeks, I can't get anybody to focus on anything except Russia. I said, Russia? I mean, it's just China, China, China. All anybody talks about all day long is China in this town. He said, no, Russia's going to invade Ukraine. This is in December. And I, I almost fell off my chair. I said, what? Mm. Why? Why would they do that? He said, oh, they think it's theirs and you know, all stuff like that. <laughs> and this is in December. Uh, and so the, the administration had picked up the intelligence last October that Putin intended to invade Ukraine. And at the beginning, it, they couldn't quite figure it out because they said, you know, what's the big idea here? How is this supposed to work? Why would you do this? Why now all of this stuff? And of course, they tried for months to talk them out of it and things like that, that didn't, that didn't work. Um, I think you can rewind the clock and look at reasons over the years, you know, NATO expansion and, you know, things like that that certainly touched nerves in 
Russia and certainly touched Putin's nerves. I mean, Putin has kind of the classic Russian historical instinct to both feel insecurity where it really doesn't exist. You know, NATO is a threat. It's their, you know, the, the, the United States is really behind everything, things like that. And to feel like Russia is not being treated with the respect that it deserves in accordance with its place in the world, which in the minds of the Russian leadership is, is much more significant than what they actually have in terms of real power. That said, so you, you can look at reasons, had things been done differently, maybe some of this could have been averted, but nothing justifies what this is. I mean, this is about as clear a, uh, a you know, a, a, an immoral, um, unjustifiable invasion of a sovereign country whose independence Russia recognizes and whose borders Russia has recognized in multiple international legal documents. And you know, this is sort of the quintessential thing that we don't want to see in the world where a leader decides that a smaller country on its borders shouldn't have those anymore and that it should be different according to what he wants and he goes in and starts killing until he can obtain that outcome. So it's pretty bad, um, but uh, you know, a lot has flowed from this very quickly in Europe and in other places, which you know, history is moving fast right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned NATO, so let's talk about alliances. NATO uh, is slightly different, but the EU, there's been a pretty, uh, <clears throat> they've not fractured too much so far. There's been some, well, there's two, two parts to this I'd like to ask. Uh, we've seen that uh, Zelensky has put on the table, okay, so I'll leave NATO alone. I won't go for that as part of peace negotiations. We've also seen before that that they still want to persist in that. And NATO has said, okay, we'll, we'll entertain that. We'll look at that. That's on the cover. What's on the inside of that? And should we allow Ukraine and NATO? That's part of it. And then the other question is, we uh, haven't seen too many fractures in, in uh, the EU, another type of uh, alliance, let's say, in a way. But uh, the coal conversations. Germany wants to draw down or phase out coal a little slower, and that could be seen as a little bit of a, a fracture there. What are thoughts on, on all of that? Sorry, it was two-parter, two but you're smart. So NATO You've and coal. It. Okay. Um, so Ukraine wasn't going to be a member of NATO before this war. It's not going to be a member of NATO after this war. Um, the, the person who wanted Ukraine to join NATO the most was obviously Zelensky because he wanted protection from the Russians, but it was, it was not in the cards. It wasn't going to happen. The person who feared it the most was Putin, but again, it wasn't going to happen. You know, again, if you sort of rewind the clock all the way, some of this stems from 2008 at the Bucharest summit when all the NATO countries got together. The Bush administration at the time wanted to try to bring, Russia, uh, bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. France and Germany weren't having it. And so they compromised and they put out a statement saying Ukraine and Georgia will be members of NATO. They didn't say how, they didn't say when, they didn't say on what timeline, they didn't say what process. In retrospect, that was the worst possible thing because had they said nothing, then they may not have kind of incited the Russian feeling of insecurity and the creeping nature of NATO as much, who knows. Uh, had they brought them in, then those countries would have NATO protections. Mm -hmm. So what it did was sort of paint a target on their backs. And of course, Putin invaded Georgia later that year and now, mm -hmm. you know, then invaded, uh, you know, now has invaded uh, Ukraine several times. So Ukraine's not going to be a member of NATO. 
Um, and so that's just not on the table. Um, in terms of the EU, the EU has stepped up in ways that we've never seen before. So never before until about a month and change ago had the EU ever financed arms transfers to any other country. And that's what it's doing now uh, with Ukraine. Um, you know, if you, the, the kind of sanctions that the EU has put in place are the kind of sanctions that as recently as 48 hours before the invasion, the EU was saying they could never do under any circumstances. And they've done that and they're looking for more. The biggest thing, of course, is Russian oil and gas because now the price of oil is high enough so that, you know, Russia, the, the Russia is able to, um, you know, defend uh, an economy that probably this year will contract. The World Bank says it'll probably contract by 10 or 15 percent. That's a lot, but you can keep an economy going uh, on, you know, on that. Um, the, the issue the Europeans have is obviously their dependence on uh, oil and gas. So coal has been the thing that's easier to sort of deal with, and that's why the Germans are saying, well, you know, what oil and gas? Uh, coal, coal. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, deal, we'll cut off uh, our purchases of, of Russian coal, which is really not an issue. I mean, it's really not the issue, but they're trying to subsidize because, you know, they're, they're worried of, throwing tens of thousands of Germans out of work if they have a lack of supply in their own country, particularly of gas, um, which is harder to replace than, uh, than Russian oil. So, uh, you know, so they're in a bind. But the next couple of weeks may force the issue in some ways because I think we're going to see an intensified war in Ukraine compared to what we've seen before. I, don't, I think we're not anywhere close to the end of this. And and you know there clearly are points at which Europe is taking measures that inc that include significant economic sacrifice, and maybe a different story after that. Okay, oil and gas. Let's go there for a second, since you mentioned it. Um, in addition to to coal, like we just said, but can we can Europe decrease substantially or halt completely Russian reliance? And keep in mind that if Le Pen gets voted in on April 24th in the second round, that she opposes sanctions on, on Russian gas Yeah, I mean, in so, France. Yeah, so, so Marine Le Pen has been financed by the Russians, um, which, I mean, literally millions of dollars uh, financed by the Russians and banks that are linked to the government. And, and why this hasn't become, certainly under current circumstances, more of a political liability th than it has is, is sort of mystifying to me. It hasn't in the past. And... And, and all of this, she, you know, her response has been, well, they're just loans. I mean, that, that doesn't seem to be a very great response, but, uh, but you know, who knows what will happen in the, in the French runoff here. Um, you know, you can, yes, you could replace uh, Russian oil with oil from somewhere else. The question is how much are you willing to pay a premium to do that? Gas, I mean, I'm in Dallas, so I shouldn't even be talking about energy <laughs> with everybody in this room. We can probably tell me about the fungibility of natural gas supplies uh, all day long. But, you know, gas is a much harder thing to do um, given the infrastructure necessary to move that gas around. And so that would be a lot harder. So I don't know that, you know, it, in a way it was easy for the United States because we just don't import that much of that stuff from, from the Russian. Of course, we have our own domestic supplies and we get it from other places to say, you know, we'll sort of do this. Um, it's much harder for the Europeans. So, could it be done? Yeah, you could do it, but there, you know, the question is at what cost? At what cost financially, and then what cost just in terms of supply interruptions? Um, you know, maybe that will be a different calculation as you get out of the winter, and you know, things like that. I mean, what they've committed to is to draw down their dependence on, on you know, oil and gas. Uh, but 
you know, I think this is still very much, you know, a work in progress. Have we overpromised our capabilities of helping out with oil and gas? Well, what, helping the Europeans out? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, we're in Dallas, so you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, I, in Washington, they hear a lot about, you know, we should, uh, you know, we should just sell our gas to Europe. Well, I mean, the U.S., Biden doesn't call someone, a company, and say, please sell it to Luxembourg or something like that, right? I mean, you know, you sell is according to transactions and contracts and things like that. I mean, the United States government doesn't requisition energy supplies and then resell those to countries that we like. And so, uh, can, you know, can we sell oil and gas to Europe? Of course. I what mean, about our it, own supply? Sell it to anyone. Um, so what the administration's trying to do is basically do a bunch of different things at once to try to at least be seen as they're increasing the supply and therefore reducing the price of gas. And so they want to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal, which they say might, you know, if that all came together, might bring a million and a half or two million barrels of oil onto the market per day that uh, in addition to um, to what exists. They've been in these talks uh, with Venezuela very nascent stuff about could Venezuela sort of come out of it uh, out of the cold and 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 increase the amount that it's producing, increase you know uh, encouraging domestic producers to step up their own production, you know which may take eight or nine months or something like that, but you know sort of do that and then release a million barrels a day out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I think a lot of this is like political. They, they want to be seen as doing something, and they hope that there's some market signals here. Um, but you know you don't just conjure a huge amount more supply. The one sort of wild card in this is Saudi Arabia because the before the invasion, when it looked pretty certain that all of this was going to go down in some way, shape, or form, U.S. government approached the Saudis and said, you know, we want you to increase supply if, if you know, the Russian supply comes off the market or, you know, it's not getting bought. And the Saudis all told the administration we have no authority to do that. There's only one guy in the country who can do that. His name is Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, who Biden has never spoken to because he chopped up uh, you know, Khashoggi, the, the, the journalist. And so he's been really in the doghouse with the administration. And they said, and the only way he'll consider it is if Biden calls and asks him personally. And Biden didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it. And then he finally said, okay, I'll call him. And then MBS didn't take the call. So... <laughs> They, the MBS found the one thing the, the administration wanted. Uh, so anyway, so that's kind of where they are. So Saudi, you know, has a little bit of, of some room to play with. But um, anyway, that's a long answer to a short question. No, no, no. I like it. And actually, we're going to go in that direction in a moment. But before we pivot, I think we can all agree or perhaps maybe not. Well, do we all agree on anything? No. OK. Uh, but a lot of us could say this is probably going to be a protracted scenario, um, crisis. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Before we pivot out of this, uh, what are possible solutions to this? What are uh, let's not even say solutions because there may no there there may not be solutions. What are possible 
results if you were forced to say two or three things that you could see happening? What's our way out of this? Well, if you look at Russian behavior in the past, well, really in the post-Cold War era, a lot of it has been to recognize in some way, shape, or form either the independence or some sort of autonomous status of particular areas and then uh, have them call for Russian peacekeepers and then you move the Russian troops in there and then functionally those regions are detached from the rest of the country. So that's true in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which is part of Georgia. It's true in Transnistria, which is part of Moldova. The Russians more or less own Belarus at this point. Um, and so, and, and that has been true, it, it was obviously true of Crimea in Ukraine, which they have annexed, but it's also been true in the eastern part of, of, of Ukraine, which originally the Russians were sort of stirring up the, the fighters there to, you know, take on the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians beat them, and so the Russians sent their own troops in, you know, years ago, and this war has sort of been going on there for years and years. Um, and so you get these, what they call these frozen conflicts. So I think, you know, what the Russians tried and the, and, the t and the traditional sort of Russian military way is to bombard the urban and suburban areas with artillery and rockets and everything. Uh, then t when the, there's sort of humanitarian crisis, you, you offer to let the civilians go, and then, and then some of the civilians go, and then you declare everybody who remains obviously a fighter because the civilians left, and then you bombard it more, and then when the place is totally destroyed, you move in your, your, your ground troops. They tried a very different model with Kiev because I think they didn't want to completely destroy Kiev, and they thought they could get away with this kind of quick win, this kind of blitzkrieg, you know, move on Kiev, send the Ukrainian government packing, they'll go into exile, we'll take Kiev, we'll be greeted as liberators, and then we'll announce, you know, kind of Ukraine is ours in some way, shape, or form. None of that happened. It was a horribly uh, wrong guess uh, uh, that that was going to happen. Um, and so what I think the fallback now that they've moved out of Kiev is to connect all the eastern part of Ukraine from Kharkiv all the way down, a land bridge of Crimea, which they already have, and then across the Black Sea coast, mm -hmm. and as far as they can go. And they, if they achieve that, uh, then you would leave Ukraine as a uh, landlocked or almost landlocked uh, country, no longer has a Black Sea coast, um, easily sort of um, uh, controlled everywhere except on its Polish border, surrounded by Belarus and Russia all the way around. No. You know, Russia in control of all of the good, <laughs> all that good territory. Uh, and, you know, if Ukraine ever sort of pops its head up again in a way that Russia doesn't like. You can sort of move on from there. Um, and that ultimately may be something that Zelensky and the Ukrainians have to think about whether they're going to live with, not as a formal matter, because no Ukrainian president's going to agree to give that territory away, but you know, as a de facto matter. I mean, the Ukrainians don't recognize Russian sovereignty over Crimea, but they didn't fight for it. And in the East, they stopped fighting because it was getting so bloody. So, you know, if Putin went to, you know, to Zelensky and said, okay, you know, we've, you know, right now they're trying to surround the Ukrainian army in the, in the East, but if they are in, able to destroy large parts of the Ukrainian army and lots of those cities, and he says, okay, we stay here and then the fighting stops, what do you do? You get to keep Kiev, you get to keep your Western border, 
you get to keep most of the Ukrainian speaking places, but you don't get your Black Sea coast, you don't get the east. I mean, I don't know, it's a tough, tough position. But I can imagine something like that being an outcome here. I mean, obviously I hope the outcome is a defeat of the Russians, but you know, I, I don't think, there's a lot of kind of bravado now, and Zelensky's so inspiring. I think it's easy to say, well, you know, let's kick their asses, yeah. which, you know, would be nice, but I, I, I don't know how realistic that's going to be. I just can't imagine losing that outlet to the Black Sea, uh, which yeah. obviously is being discussed, but um, I guess none of us could really imagine any of this. I mean, I guess your friend did. Well, on the Hill. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how does this change our world order? Uh, very dramatically. I mean, if you're in Washington, a lot of times everybody's like, we're in an inflection point, you know? Everything's changing right now. You hear this all, we're always in an inflection point. And, you, and we're never in an inflection point. Uh, you, you know, usually there's much more continuity than anybody actually appreciates. But I actually think now is the one time where that, that is actually true in a, in a bunch of different ways. I wrote a long essay for the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago, so if you can't yeah, sleep at night, then, uh, you might wanna, and you want chapter and verse, then you can check this out. Um, but, you know, you can sort of go around and look at this. So, you know, Putin, well, first of all, look at what Putin wanted and what he achieved, right? So he wanted a Ukraine that was gonna be fundamentally pro-Russian. Well, that's not the case now. He wanted a NATO that was going to be smaller and commit never to expand more. Well, Finland and Sweden are gonna join NATO possibly as soon as the summer, so it's gonna be bigger, not smaller. He wanted a NATO where none of the troops that had been deployed east since 1997 would be there. They'd all go back west in Western Europe away from Russia. Well, the United States today has more troops in Europe than it has at any time in the last 20 years, and those people are not going home. Right? You know, everything is gonna move east, not, not west. So in terms of like the, the Russian sort of preferred order, and, and of course, Putin wanted to divide NATO and divide the west, and, and even within the United States, he's trying to sort of divide Americans. He's accomplished what no one else has been able to accomplish, bring Republicans and Democrats together and you know, Europeans and Americans together and, and you know, European, you know, I mean, Trump harangued the Europeans to spend more on defense and you guys are free riders and you suck as allies. And they were like, yeah, 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 you know, and, and he said it rudely, but every president had been doing that for 30 years. And overnight, you know, the, the Germans commit to a level of defense spending. If they follow through, they'll have the third biggest military in the world, yeah. uh, the best funded military in the world after China, after the United States and China. So Putin, in terms of this, you know, all these different aspects are changing and you're seeing the EU step up and do things that's never done before. I mean, maybe my favorite example, this is Switzerland. I mean, it's only been neutral for 500 years, but, but you know, I mean, you know, but, but, you know, in the first weekend of this war, there were 20,000 Swiss marching in the streets of Bern, Switzerland, saying, you know, calling on their government to do something about this. So they froze Russian assets, a lot of which were in Switzerland and Swiss banks. They adopted the EU sanctions. They've condemned the invasion. The Swiss, I mean, when the Swiss are not on the fence anymore, you know things are changing. And you, know, you even look at, you know, so Singapore imposed sanctions. I think, if anybody knows differently, correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, but, uh, but I think the last time the, uh, the Singaporeans imposed unilateral sanctions, not like UN sanctions, 
was after the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia in the late 1970s. They haven't done it since then, but they did it this time. And Russia's not near Singapore, mm. right? Russia's not near Korea or Japan. I mean, so you're seeing these countries do things they've never done before. The big overarching question is, does this last? Like, is this an epiphenomenon and we wake up and it's six months? It feels like Afghanistan felt like, oh my God, everything is happening now and we're, the world will never be the same. We got to do all these things. And people now people are like, didn't something happen in Afghanistan? Um, but I do think this is different because, in, and especially in Europe, you cannot underestimate how profound the trauma is in Europe for the EU to see a state-on-state -state land war on its borders for the first time since 1945. This is a big deal. And in Asia, it's a big deal for that reason, but also because they're running the China-Taiwan playbook. And they see all of this as, you know, if the Russians coming out of this looking like this was a horrible mistake and they're gonna pay lasting costs, maybe that'll get the Chinese to think differently about Taiwan. On the other hand, if the Russians sort of, you know, hunker down and they get what they want, they don't pay very high costs, that too has instructed the Chinese. So they got a dog in this fight beyond this. So I, I think this is a really, big deal and a big moment uh, for kind of the international order that we foreign policy geeks think about a lot. Mm, mm. Well, I want to pivot because we don't have too much time yeah, left. Yeah, I should make my answer shorter. No, we could listen I'll to I'll start you answering yes or day. no to everything. <laughs> Three or you know, something like that. Texas. I don't know. Yeah, yeah actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, What happens now with all of our efforts with climate I change? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. no. Now with our, our balancing our oil and gas needs, what happens with climate change? Well, in the short run, the, some of these efforts get undermined, right? So, I mean, Germany is a perfect example. I mean, there were multiple reasons why Germany, um, uh, you know, I mean, well, I, I take this back in a way. I mean, Germany, now that I think about it, Germany may be actually the opposite because if they go back to nuclear power, which they wanted to, that would be good for the climate, right? But, you know, the, the, the current administration has two things at once at the same time, right? It wants more supply of oil on the market so the price of gas comes down, at least to the midterms, and, uh, and it wants, you know, people to use less oil in general. And, you know, one way you could do that was a really high price of oil and people start to diversify into alternative sources of energy. Well, you can't have both those things at the same time. So what they basically say is we got a short run objective and we got sort of the long run kind of John Kerry objective, right? Like the short run objective is bring the price down, help people that are hurting because the price of gas is going up in addition to inflation. And then over the long run, you know, so increase production as a way overall to decrease use over time. I mean, you know, I, I, I can actually, I mean, I can actually see a path to the, the increased production more clearly that I can see a path to the decreased, decreased use of fossil fuels, at least in term, as far as the government is, is concerned. I mean, you know, people, I mean, the price of solar energy has gone down, and so that's increased the price, the increased use of solar, and obviously people are buying electric cars. But those aren't happening really because the government is telling people to do this or that or the other thing, or because we're passing a cap and trade law or, or any these kind of mechanisms that might put that kind of stuff in place. It's happening because of market forces, and you know those market forces over the long run can still take effect, and and you know these kind of campaigns and get people to uh, to diversify over the longer run. But I don't know how the how from a government perspective, they sort of square the circle between the short and the long-term thing. So that's a, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a great answer.
Uh, you touched on China. I wanted to ask about that. I'm not going to. Maybe somebody else will ask a question about that. But have we forgotten the Middle East? You, you talked a little bit about that, but we've got Abraham Accords. We've got Afghanistan last fall. We've got JCPOA, Saudi and Yemen. Uh, some in Middle East aren't answering our calls, <laughs> like you mentioned, um, but it's not just them. Yeah, so the biggest thing um, that is the possible reentry of the United States into the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, which I thought was imminent about a month ago. The Russians threw the first monkey wrench into this because they said, well, if you're going to relieve you uh, if you're going to relieve Iran of the sanctions it's subject to by its re-entry in the JCPOA that has to include Russian trade with Iran so that means you have to lift the sanctions on Russian trade with Iran and the administration is like no what, what, you're not getting a little carve out to do business with Iran while we're sanctioning you every way we can figure out on you know all day long and and ultimately they didn't have to have the Russians come behind that but that delayed the whole thing now the thing that's delaying is uh, the designation of the Quds Force, the IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a terrorist organization. Um, and the Iranians are saying that they won't re-enter the deal unless the United States delists the, the IRGC, the Quds Force in the IRGC as, as a terrorist, and which, which was done during the Trump administration and had not been at issue when the first round of the JCPOA was done. But, you know, and, and of course, the Quds Force is a terrorist organization. But leaving aside even the merits, the political difficulties of delisting the Quds Force as a terrorist organization, I think, are going to be potentially dispositive. So I don't know whether we get into a deal. It turns out the Iranians want it less than we anticipated. Um, and, you know, and, and they have a, a new government that's different than the one that negotiated it and things like that. Um, but that's the biggest thing is to see, you know, and that will be whether the United States re-enters it or not. I mean, you know, you sort of look around the world and if you start counting up your crises, obviously you got Russia, you can sort of imagine China one, you know, the North Koreans have started shooting off missiles again, which is never a good thing and, mm -hmm. and all of this. And, you know, I think the administration has thought, okay, well, we're going to go back into the Iran nuclear deal. And at least that will sort of keep that issue from bubbling over for a couple of years, right? They've, the, the deal's got all these bad sunsets and, and all this other kind of stuff, but, you know, <laughs> not on their watch, probably. But, you know, the, under the deal, the, the Ukrainians had, I keep saying Ukrainians, the Iranians had to stay at 3% uranium enrichment. Now they're at 60% outside the deal. They had this breakout time. How long would it take for them to get enough material to build a nuclear weapon? It was a year under the deal. Now it's two months. Mm. They obviously like to widen that back out, but if, if they don't go back into the deal, you can imagine the Iranians going from 60 to 90%, which is weapons-grade uranium, and then what's in, what are we gonna do about that? Mm. I mean, I don't think we just sit and say, well, okay, we don't care, or that's fine, and then you're back to where you started, which is, do we bomb them? Do we hope that sanctions will have something? Is there some diplomatic deal? So you can imagine this year, a, a kind of US-Iran crisis, so if, you know, if the, you know, if you're not excited enough, so, mm. you, know, you have that to look forward to. So. There are so many other things I wanted to ask you about, and I think that we'll get some great questions. But just one last question. Uh, what are we letting drop? What are we forgetting right now? What is the U.S. forgetting right now? We've had COVID first, and now we have Ukraine. What's dropping? Well, um, there's a lot. 
actually, I mean, I, I still think Afghanistan is important beyond the humanitarian stuff. I mean, everyone's hearts were moved by the scenes of what we saw during that terrible you know, withdrawal and the refugees and, and all this other kind of stuff. But, you know, the Taliban is still allied with Al Qaeda. ISIS still exists in Afghanistan. And we, in the future, will have to rely on the Taliban to be our counterterrorism implementation partner, essentially, which is not a good place to be. And there's this strong kind of mental and emotional desire to just turn the page. That was a war that did not turn out how we wanted. It was extremely costly in every way, shape, and form. It went on so long. Never want to hear about that again. And I just don't know if that sort of sleeping dog is going to lie, particularly from the terrorist point of view, which is one of these things where, you know, I mean, like, we didn't want to have to deal with ISIS in Iraq and Syria after the United States had withdrawn all of its troops from Iraq and had no troops in Syria. But once they started inspiring attacks in the United States and planning attacks in Europe, suddenly we were back at it. And it took five years of a military campaign to destroy their their, their caliphate. I, I hope we're not going to get to that, but I still think that the, the terrorist threat in Afghanistan is is an issue, and I don't think we can just kind of walk away. Um, I mean, we're in this strange kind of world where now we have troops in Iraq, and we have troops in Syria, and reportedly we have troops in Yemen and in other places around sort of the greater Middle East. The only place we don't is where the government is allied to al-Qaeda, right? Uh, so it's kind of weird. Um, but anyway, that's that's the one that I would nominate. Yeah. You can kill the person, you can't kill the ideology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's open it for questions. Yes. Oh, yes. I know he would, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, if you define war as killing each other, we're not. Um, so we don't have Russians killing Americans and Americans killing Russians. And that is something that for you know the entire Cold War, we really tried to avoid. That's why you had all these proxy wars where you know the Russians would fight one of our allies or we'd fight one of their allies and then we'd support one side or the other. Because the idea was once you get Russians and Americans killing each other, then one side starts to escalate, the other side starts to escalate, and you're talking about the two countries with the world's biggest nuclear arsenals. God knows where that goes, it's too dangerous. And you know, at the end of the day, do we care about Ukraine? We care about Ukraine. Do we care about Ukraine so much that you're willing to risk a nuclear attack on Dallas? Maybe somebody here is, but probably not very many. And you know, so what is everything you can do but go down that? path. And the everything but is all the sanctions, all the weapons. I mean, it's like an arms bazaar going into Ukraine right now with all the, all the stuff being, which is good. I mean, it's a little late in the game, but, but you know, stuff's good. You know, the, the political support, all, you know, $13 billion aid package passed by the U.S. Congress and, and things like that. But I don't think that we should do a no-fly zone because a no-fly zone means you shoot down the planes of whoever's flying that you don't want to be flying, which means that you're in the business of killing Russians, which, you know, they could just say, okay, we're, we're out of this line of work. Doesn't look to me like that's Putin's mentality right now. Um, and so, you know, this is all about calculating the risks and how much we care about stuff and what we care about most. And, uh, you know, we care a lot about Ukraine, but we don't care about Ukraine as much from a risk base perspective as we do about NATO countries where our, our entire country has agreed in advance that we will protect that country since I'm ever NATO. 
Yeah. I mean, if we listen to the Austrian chancellor who visited uh, yeah. yesterday, I think uh, we can be pessimis pessimistic. Uh, yes. Uh, what is the uh, chance of a regime change in Russia? Is, what does the public in Russia think of the war? Is there any movement uh, to uh, you know, stop the <laughs> aggression, inhumane aspects of the war? Yeah, so it's a great question. In terms of what the Russians think, so Putin's approval rating is higher now than it was before the war. There's been this rally around the flag effort, and this is polling done by a, 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 a reputable polling firm. This is not just propaganda. So it looks like there's been a rally around the flag. They have really you know, moved, I mean, I, I, don't know, I was in Russia a couple of years ago. I mean, you can get CNN on TV and, and you, know, you can read the Moscow Times in English and stuff like that. Since the beginning of this war, they do what Russians do when they have an external conflict, which really crack down hard on in sources of information. So, you know, it seems like the average Russian believes more or less the information being fed by the state-run media, which is how most Russians get their news, which is this war has never been in Kiev. It was a response to genocide against Russians and Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. There was no other choice but to do this. This is a humanitarian mission. Yes, there's been some cost, but nothing like the kinds of numbers of dead and injured that are being reported by everybody else is actually at issue. Um, and that all these sanctions that are going into place are the kind of stuff that the West was cooking up even before this war and would have done whether or not we went in because they hate us and they want to weaken Russia. Does that last? Does that narrative last? Hard to say. Um, you know, in terms of regime change, I mean, the protests on the streets of Russia are really striking because it's not, I mean, I live in Washington. There are protests all day long, every day by somebody because the cost of protesting is minuscule, right? You just go out and do your thing. In Russia, it's really high. You know you're going to jail. And so that doesn't mean you're going to get a storming of the Bastille thing. What it does is send a signal to the elites the discontent is so high, at least among some portion of the population, they're willing to go out and unfurl a banner even knowing they're going to jail for three years to do it. And they've already jailed well more than 10,000 people since the beginning of this. That said, I would not bet on regime change in Russia. I mean, you know, some of these are like, these regimes can be like hollow trees. Like you don't know until somebody, you know, hits it and it turns out it's hollow. So if, if it happens, we probably won't know until after it happens. But I kind of look at Russian history, you know, and, and this doesn't, determine it, but you know, I think I'm right that from 1917 when Lenin took power until today, there's only been one successful coup in the Soviet Union or Russia, and that was when the second coup against Khrushchev that removed him from power. But the first coup against Khrushchev and the coup against Gorbachev failed and Stalin died in office and Lenin died in office and you know, uh, Brezhnev and Andropov and Chernenko and all these guys, I mean, the amount of bad stuff the Russians will tolerate without overthrowing their leader is like stratospherically high, historically. Um, could be different this time, but I wouldn't bet on it. Meg, did you have a question? No, Ariel. Microphone, let's wait for the, go ahead. Um, a bit in the weeds, but you mentioned ISIS. Um, I wonder if the really high rate of Russian infantry attrition could force them to pull troops from Syria and thus leave some sort of vacuum to reheat that war? Um, yeah, so 
Well, the, the Russians didn't do very much on the ground in Syria, so they weren't holding territory. They were basically, I mean, there were advisors there and there were some troops on the ground, but basically what they were doing is the air mission. And what the Russians have just done this a couple days ago, there were all this, there was a fractured command in Ukraine. I mean, this whole thing looked like a ridiculous show there. And they didn't have one person who was commanding the entire operation. What they did was took the Russian general who had commanded the air operation in Syria and put him in charge of the war in Ukraine. Now what they did in Syria was bomb all the civilian areas, hospitals, schools, uh, suburbs, houses, apartment buildings, stuff like that. And then when the emergency crews come in to get the survivors, you bomb them again. I mean, it's just pretty barbaric stuff. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think in the next two weeks or so you're likely to see a very intense uh, and brutal fight in eastern Ukraine. Um, the other thing about Syria is now Assad has reconquered most of the territory. The territory that is held by somebody other than Assad is really held by foreign governments like ours with, together with the Kurds and stuff like that. It's really, you don't really have much territory left. I mean, it, you know, it was the case at one point where even the suburbs of, of, of Damascus were being held by opposition forces. That's, that's gone. So there's, you know, he's basically got it at, at this point. So I don't know that, that moving Russians over, which they're doing, I mean, they're even recruiting Syrians to go fight in Ukraine. Um, but I don't know that that's going to change much in Syria itself. Larry. Yeah, why am I calling on people? You should. Do Sorry, it. I don't Do know. It. I just love it. Bossy kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could shift focus really quick and talk about um, hemispheric affairs. Yeah. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing this hemisphere and the Americas in general? Um, well, I mean, for, uh, I, I, the, the two, I guess. Hold I mean, on. Did everyone hear that question? Yeah, could okay. you, re Larry, repeat it if you would? Sure. Um, I was asking our guest speaker if he could talk about hemispheric yep. affairs and what he sees as the biggest challenges facing um, the Americas. So I would, you know, Venezuela has been a challenge for a very long time. I think it's likely to continue to be a challenge, almost of a unique nature. Um, it, there's a Russian aspect to this because the Russians moved military advisors into Venezuela and then offered America kind of this deal where, you know, they'd get out of uh, and stop helping Venezuela. If we stop helping Ukraine, we didn't take it. This is a long time, months ago, whatever. Um, but I, the, the two, I guess, that I would sort of nominate are Mexico and Brazil for very different reasons. I think that, you know, the crime rate, my dad lives in Mexico, so this is somewhat parochial, I guess. But, you know, the level of crime in Mexico is just, um, is in, in some parts of Mexico, sort of society-defining and, um, you know, AMLO is, has his attractions and he's been a populist and all this other kind of stuff, but it's not clear to me that uh, economically or in security terms, Mexico's any better off now than it was a couple of years ago. It may be worse and, you know, it is where it is. So I think Mexico kind of, the, the security and the narco-trafficking situation in Mexico obviously is, is a big one. And then the other one is Brazil, which I guess for me, I just put more in the, as an American, put more in the kind of missed opportunity than anything else. I mean, certainly if I was Brazilian, some of the Bolsonaro mismanagement I would, would grate. But, you know, a few years ago, we, 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 you know, we talked about 
Brazil is kind of, you know, the emerging power in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, it's got the population and this, the, you know, it had high growth rates, this emerging economy. It started working with the United States on some environmental stuff and some energy stuff and, and all of that. And, like, all those ambitions are just, it's just, that, that's all gone because, you know, Bolsonaro's kind of led the, this sort of, you know, populist, more, much more inward-looking, kind of Brazil that doesn't mesh very well with, with where the United States, I think, would like to see that, that partnership go in, in the Western Hemisphere. So those, I guess, would be the two that I would, I would nominate. Yes, in the back. The, the question deals with food supply. With the disruption in the activities in Ukraine, what's the impact on worldwide food supply in the next year and six months? Horrible, horrible. I was, I was in uh, the Philippines uh, two and a half weeks ago. I've been on the road a little bit, so uh, mm. if I don't get divorced after this, <laughs> we do have four kids. Um, they were fine last night, though. So, um, but I was in the Philippines two and a half weeks ago, and and it was amazing. You know, it's harder to kind of pick a place further from this Russian stuff than than the Philippines, and they are freaked out because the price of energy obviously is going up, and the price of food is skyrocketing, and so. You know, Ukraine and, and Russia together are the biggest, uh, you know, growers of wheat in the world. So that is pushing the, you also have niche things like the price of soybean oil went up by about 150% right at the very beginning of the war. Um, now the Ukrainians are going to be entering the, the, the growing season, the planting season. And, you know, you got a war there. I mean, our farmers going to be able to plant. They have a horrible, there, there's lots of warehouses in, in Ukraine that are filled with grain and food, and they have no way to move that supply onto the markets. The, the Russians are blockading the Black Sea coast, so you can't, there, there are no Ukrainian ships that can get in and out. I mean, you sort of multiply this, so the price of food is going up in almost every way, and you're also getting, you know, the prices go up on, because you're getting substitution effects, right? So the price of wheat goes up, so the price of rice goes up in the Philippines. Well, the Ukrainians aren't growing rice, but as people shift from wheat to rice, the price of rice goes up. So, you know, it's one of these horrible things that the, the kind of victimization of this act of aggression is going to be widespread and touch people that have never even heard of Ukraine. And, um, and it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to last a while. There was just... Um, there, I think it was the World Bank just a day or two ago did some projections on, um, on you know, different sort of foodstuffs and the, and the, the anticipated price. But every single one of them is, I mean, the, the angle is, is, is far higher than we would want. And um, so it's going to hurt, you know, the, the, the poorest the most. Yes, ma'am. Are the sanctions in place enough to actually affect the outcome? If by the outcome, you mean the outcome of the war, no. Uh, but I don't think there's probably any sanctions that it would be enough to affect the outcome. There was a sort of a different theory of the case with the sanctions before the war and, the af and after the war. And I mean, this uh, friend of mine is the deputy national security advisor, and I was talking to him about this, um, you know, very specifically. I mean, before the war, the idea was if we threaten stuff that is significant enough, maybe Putin will say, hey, this is just not worth it. You know, it, it's the, the cost is going to be too high. That obviously failed. So the deterrent effect of the sanctions failed. Once he was in, 
all the people in the administration and, and in Europe, too, that are sort of piling up these sanctions on Russia, no one's under the illusion that Putin's going to wake up one day and say, oh, now it's, now it's too much, I'm, I'm getting out. Um, what seems to be the belief, and I think this is probably right, is that they've sort of lost hope in shaping Putin's will to do things, his intent. So they think he's intent on taking parts of Ukraine no matter what they do. Uh, what really matters is his capability over the long, over the long haul here. You, you, they tried through deterrence and through the threatening stuff to affect his will to do this. But if he's bent on doing this and doing things like this into the future, then what you want to do is erode his ability to be successful in doing it. And you do that by isolating and impoverishing the country, which is really what the sanctions are intended to do. They're trying to provoke a near default on Russian debt. They have export, it hasn't got as much attention as the sanctions, but all these export controls. Um, it, so export controls on technology and things like that. In addition to the, the company self-sanctioning, you know, no more iPhones to Russia and things like that, probably going to shut down their, their manned space program. There's a Russian tank line that just stopped in its tracks the other day because it was dependent on, on Western parts for the tanks that can't get anymore. Over time, you can try to substitute some of this stuff. They've obviously got China that'll sell them anything they want. But th these things will take effect. And the aim, therefore, is to say, all right, well, the guy is going to try to do what the guy is going to try to do. Let's try to make him less successful in that through the sanctions rather than try to affect you know, his will. So. I think we have one more question. Dave. We could do two. Three. We could do these three. And, and, then, and then I'll just Do them all, all together. OK, yeah. Dave first, then the woman in the back. And there was one other one. And we'll ask them all together. You're enlightening. This is very good. Thank you. Great sense of humor in the midst of this horrible <laughs> situation, not being disrespectful. Uh, it's astonishing to me to hear you speak of and read about the Europeans and the fact that they say that they, this is horrible and this is uh, you know, almost a holocaust, and yet they're really not putting their money where their mouth is with true cutting off of the funds that are supporting Putin. What will really force, and I'm talking mainly Germany here, and the Italians, those are the two most dependent on the oil and gas, is there anything that will, will public opinion move to force those governments to say, it's time to put our money and our true morality ahead of other things? Okay, question one, we're gonna go over here to the back, the woman in the back in the green. Question two. My question is, what is being done and what can be done about the horrific war crimes in Ukraine, such as the use of illegal weapons, bombing of citizen shelters, bombing of hospitals, as well as the raping of Ukrainian women and children? Okay, question two. Is there a third question? Did you see somebody, Richard? I did, someone back there, but she looks like oh. she left. Okay. Stormed out and, okay. <laughs> yeah. or this is getting real dark real fast. I know, I know. Oh wait. Yeah, 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 and, that's, and, a great, that's a great yeah. question. Yeah. India was the question, you know. And we didn't touch on the Pakistan's ouster of Khan. Also. Oh yeah. Okay, anyway, yeah. go ahead. Okay, so what, what will it take the Europeans to impose oil and gas sanctions or, 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 or cut off of oil? Italy. Germany and Italy. Um, well, what it would take is something is, is some event that is so profound as to move 
the political will there to accept the sacrifice of potentially throwing many people out of work because of an inability to access energy supplies. So that can be done. It has not yet materialized, but look at, look at the next two weeks. I mean, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but I think the next two weeks are going to be pretty barbaric in, in Ukraine. And it's those kind of humanitarian and security things that have moved the, the Europeans so far. Could it move them to do something on oil and gas? Yeah, I think so. A complete cutoff tomorrow? Probably not. But in between where they are now and that, there's some gradations there. So that, I think that's that's that. Um, the, on, the, on the accountability, I mean, the International Criminal Court has opened um, uh, an investigation into war crimes in, in Ukraine, but neither Russia nor the United States, by the way, recognizes the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, so that's a very kind of limited utility. Um, you know, there will be other investigations uh, by other countries, probably. But in terms of actual accountability, really the only way you would get accountability is if you had a post-Putin regime that wants to investigate itself and hold accountable its own people, which is generally how these things go. But that's back to kind of the regime change thing. It's not going to be the case that all these people get court-martialed in Russia and thrown in jail for doing things that are you know, not only acceptable but directed, uh, which is really what they're doing. You know, on India, India is really interesting. So the president just did a, a virtual summit with Prime Minister Modi. And, you know, it really complicates in a lot of ways this kind of narrative that we sort of, you know, there's a war between the, you know, the, the democratic world and the autocracy, autocratic world. Well, the world's biggest democracy is not imposing, India is not imposing sanctions. It did not vote to condemn Russia at the UN and things like that. There's a few reasons for that. One is that more than 50% of all the, uh, weapons and systems in the Indian military uh, are Russian-made and relying on Russian parts and some degree Russian maintenance and, and, and technicians, and they want to make sure that that kind of continues to operate. Another is, I think, some sort of lingering non-aligned stuff. Well, they're but, also taking advantage of discounted Russian oil also. Well, yeah, so they're buying Russian oil at a 20% discount. Part of this goes to, and this is not just true of India, but it's true of other countries, Israel, the United States, what do you care about most? You know, Germany. So, you know, people have said this about Israel. Well, you know, they haven't taken a hard enough stand all this stuff. Well, they care about Iran more than they care about Ukraine. They care about Ukraine, but they care about Iran for obvious reasons. And in order to be able to attack, as they have now for years, uh, Hezbollah moving weapons across the border in Syria into Lebanon that then therefore could menace Israel, they need Russian permission because Russian has controlled the airspace there. So Netanyahu done, I don't know, gone 20 times or something to Moscow and stuff like that. So, you know, you antagonize the Russians at the price of, what, more insecurity on your own borders with India. Well, they care about Russia. They care about Ukraine, but they care about China more. So if Russia was to say, okay, well, we're going to cut off, you know, the arms exports to you and then make it harder for you to fend off the Chinese next time they move across your border, that'd be a bad outcome. So these countries are all trying to kind of balance their various interests. And a lot is told by kind of what do you care about the most, right? You care about all these things, but what do you care about the most? And, you know, India matters in Asia more than it matters in Europe. It matters to China, and it cares more about China than it cares about Europe and Russia and things like that. Last thing, just because I don't want this to be a downer in terms of all this stuff, but here, here's one thing I will say, though, and it gets back to this, you know, why won't the Europeans do more? Frankly, if you had said a month and a half ago, 
uh, multiple countries in Europe, including the Germans, will, will commit to 2% GDP on defense into the indefinite future. And the Germans themselves will spend 100 billion euros this year to amp up their defense. And that the EU will adopt coercive sanctions, draconian sanctions against the Russians. And, and that the Japanese will join these and the South Koreans. And, you know, if you looked around, you, that would have been, un, the stuff that's happened so far is unthinkable. I can talk about the Swiss again, but unthinkable, right? And, and so in all of this, there's a lesson because, you know, sometimes in Washington, we sort of wail and gnash our teeth the decline of the United States, the rise of China, and now it's working together more closely with, with Russia. And, you know, the more erudite among us will say, well, Bismarck, you know, Otto von Bismarck, when he looked at Europe, there were five great powers, and he wanted to make sure that, you know, Prussia or Germany was going to be in the three, not the two. So now we look at three great powers. Oh, my God, there's two, and we're only one. What are we going to do? And you know, all stuff like that. But here's what this experience has shown us the underlying strength of the West, which I would include countries with Western-style institutions like Japan and Germany and even Singapore and some of these other, I'm sorry, Japan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand, countries not in the West, in that, one, it's all the biggest economies in the world except China. Of the seven biggest economies, it's six. It's more than half the world's GDP. Again, with the exception of China, it's the, by far the world's most capable militaries. It's got an underlying strength that was there all along, but we just never harnessed it because we didn't work together and we were all so inwardly divided that we were fighting with each other. By bringing that to bear, look at what has happened. These countries brought the Russian economy to its knees in 48 hours, provoked a near default on Russian sovereign debt in a matter of a few weeks. It has stopped the production lines in Russia of key weapon systems. It has flooded Ukraine with support of all kinds, military but humanitarian stuff and everything else. It's dealing with four and a half million Ukrainian refugees that didn't exist six weeks ago. The underlying strengths of the West working together is something that we had kind of forgotten. And this shows just how much we have if we actually like harness it and, and devote it to a good cause. Whether we can keep that going and other good causes remains to be seen, but it's pretty encouraging. Um, and I think it's a signal that, you know, at least in Washington, we sort of get crying our beer about the sort of direction of history, and we're divided in these fractious democracies, and the autocrats are on the march, and the Russians and the Chinese, well, maybe not, that's not as true as we thought. Maybe we actually do have a lot to bring to the table, and if we can just get our act together and start doing it, then we'll, the whole world will be better off. Thank you for... Uh, ending us on a much more positive note. <laughs>